0: Inside as it is in Chicago outside. <laughs> you come to Southern California to find the warmth. And all of you sitting here with your coats on, at least our students at Wheaton when they come to chapel could take their coats off. <laughs> what a delight it is for us to, for me to be able to be here with you today. I just, uh, have been watching this ministry literally from its inception. Your president is, uh, one of the heroes of today's church. One of the men to whom I have looked for leadership and modeling. I have found him a courageous, uh, unhesitating champion of the Word of God. And I found myself instructed by him. I remember. Bringing a group of our elders to the Shepherds Conference, John, and finding ourselves touched and moved and stimulated all over again to a renewed vision for ministry in the local church. There are a lot of things I'd like to say to you this morning. I'd like to share some things, uh, but I am going to focus directly upon the Word of God. There are all kinds of things that uh, would take me afield from the scriptures. But I'm going to do with you what I do with my own students, and that is when I come to chapel, I tell them, uh, bring your Bibles with you to chapel when it's the president's chapel, because we are going to do some serious Bible study together. And they do. Our chapel is, brings a wide variety of things. We, too, have three chapels a week, and they're very good and vibrant chapels. Two hours ago, that student body was gathered just like this one, singing worshiping together, and a very vital chapel. I thoroughly enjoy that chapel, and whenever I'm on campus, I am in chapel. But when I come to chapel, I want them to know that they're going to be hearing an exposition of Scripture. I want them to get that teaching from the Word of God, but I also want them to hear that from their president. And I am tempted, I was tempted to come here and uh, talk to you about some other things that were not directly related to the exposition of scripture. And then I said, no, I wouldn't do that with my students. Why would I do that with master's college students? And the fact of the matter is if there is any group of college students which would be attuned to and well trained to be expert hearers of the word of God, it would have to be this student body. Because I know you are fed on a steady diet of first class and very powerful exposition of God's word. We want to do that again today, and I want to turn your attention to the Old Testament, to First Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look together at one of the most familiar stories in the entire Bible. I want to look with you this morning at the account of David and Goliath. This wonderful old Sunday school story that all of us, even people who weren't raised in the church, are familiar with. And for some of you who were raised in a church, in a strong Christian home, this story is absolutely second nature to you, as it was to me. I grew up hearing this story all of my life. I grew up in a strong Christian home, in a strong church church. The story of David and Goliath was one of the great tales of the Old Testament, told over and again and celebrated. But just here, I want to share with you something of a dirty little secret. I would have to say that looking back, the story of David and Goliath never did very much for me. I heard the story and I even liked it. But it had a, a, a certain sort of jack and the beanstalk quality to it that left me cold when it came to any kind of spiritual insight. Looking back, I cannot remember, and it may be more a testimony about me than any of my teachers through those years. I don't think I ever heard this story, apart from the context of uh, teaching this story with a, a sense of uh, this wonderful, courageous young man standing up to be counted against great odds. Because of his faith in God, he was able to be successful. But I have to confess to you that at that level, in hearing the story that way, uh, I don't think it ever came home to me. Not only did I not find it particularly inspiring, I mean, I like this story, I didn't mind hearing it told or telling it myself, I suppose. but I didn't find it particularly inspiring for me as a young Christian. In fact, there is a sense in which this story actually put me off a bit. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, to this extraordinary account of David and Goliath. The Philistines have occupied one hill, the Israelites the other, with the valley between them, verse 3. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. This guy was over nine feet Tall. That's a pretty tall dude. He comes out and he challenges the Israelite army. They're lined up on both sides of this valley. The perennial battle between the Philistines and the, and the Israelites. And now here is their champion, that Philistine champion, this fellow named Goliath from Gath, this great giant who comes out nine feet tall and he comes out into the valley and there he taunts day after day. This has been going on for 40 days. He taunts the Israelites. With the result that, verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This fellow, Goliath from Gath, verse 23, as he was talking with him, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, comes out into the field. Now, The account goes this way. David is not a soldier. He's just a young shepherd boy. Now, he has three brothers. There are eight sons of Jesse. He's the youngest. His three oldest brothers are serving under Saul. They're a part of this Israelite army that has been listening now for 40 days to this Philistine giant come out and taunt them. And the result is that they are utterly terrified. And here now, behind the Israelite lines, comes this young man. Uh, the father, Jesse, has sent him out with supplies to come to those three brothers to bring supplies to the army. And David shows up, just a kid. Hard to know, really, at this stage, exactly how old he was. But as he's there and he comes up to the lines, the the Israelites have taken their place in line. David comes up to where his brothers are. And just at that time, out comes the daily encounter with Goliath. And Goliath starts taunting this champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Verse 24. They are terrified by this. David begins asking the question. He turns to the man next to him, verse 26. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, David's oldest brother overhears David talking that way so loudly and brashly. This young shepherd boy, this non-soldier who has come, and instead of having watery knees... He says, who is this guy that he thinks he can talk to us that way? David's older brother hears him saying those words and has a very interesting response. When Eliab wife, David's older brother, verse 28, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? There's a little backhanded, you're just a little shepherd boy. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch the battle. David says, wait a second, hold it. What have I done? Can I even speak? He then turned to someone else and asked the same set of questions. He brings up the same matter. And the question is, who is this Philistine, this Goliath, that he thinks he can get away with this? Now, I have to be honest with you. Again, this story is, is, is moving toward making David the hero of this story. And he's going to emerge. You know what's going to happen here. He's beginning to build toward being the hero of this story. But I'm, I'm at this stage, I'm identifying with David's brother alive. I'm thinking, who do you think you are, kid? You have no idea what you're up against. Again, the story is not working for me at this point. I have not yet uh, entered into this story. David turns and continues to ask these questions about Goliath. How can he stand? The result is that Saul gets wind of David asking these questions. And then comes this amazing turn of the story. Now, here's where things really get tough for me. Saul sends for David, and we come to verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. He's saying, excuse me. What has prepared us in this story for this? David stands up, says, "Who can, who is this fellow that he should defy us? Next thing you know, he's being balled out by his brother. He keeps on talking. He keeps on uh, asking the question about this Philistine. Saul hears it, and suddenly David is saying, hold it. I'll go. This kid from behind the lines is going to go out and fight this nine-foot giant. And everything in me is saying, who do you think you are? I'm with Eliab. David's brother. I'm saying to myself, David, you've got to be kidding. How brash, how arrogant can you be that you think you can go out and take on that giant? Again, that's obviously not what the story's supposed to be generating. But I have to be honest, that's what it for years generated in me. Well, as you know, the story Saul, for the, for the life of me. I can't imagine what Saul was thinking in letting David go out there. Saul winds up letting him go, tries to put the armor on him. David says, forget that. That's not going to work. He says, I'll go out and take on this uncircumcised Philistine, verse 36, because he has defied the armies of the living God. So David takes up his staff, a stick in one hand. He goes out, he gets his smooth stones from the brook. The other hand, his sling, and he goes out to take on this giant. Well, what's the the result? Well, the result is just exactly what you would expect. Goliath is insulted. And he says to David, uh, verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And frankly, at that stage, I would have put my money on Goliath. But not so with David. David says to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. And I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And lo and behold... Wonder of wonders, that is precisely what happens. And as I read the rest of that story, I always found myself saying, I can't believe it. He pulled it off. How amazing. As I say, this story never really worked for me. That's not the response that one is supposed to have to this story. But I never really understood how it was that David was anything other than a brash, even arrogant young man. Stepping out into the way of this freight train, why didn't he get mowed down? I just read an account recently of Jonathan Blanchard, the founder of Wheaton College. Carl Sandburg wrote the account of this fellow back in the 1850s when he was still the president of Knox College. He was a staunch abolitionist and a staunch defender of the Sabbath and a whole range of other things. Quite a fearsome fellow. And there in Illinois where Knox College was, uh, for the first time, that uh, the train was going to run on the Sabbath. It had come through town, and they were happy about that, but not was going to run on the Sabbath. And Jonathan Blanchard was determined that he was not going to let that happen. So on the Sabbath, when that train first came out of the train house, he went out and stood on the tracks and commanded the engineer to take that train back into the train house. Only to have the engineer say, get off of the tracks, my orders are to come, and And he, he mowed Jonathan Blanchard down. He had to move off of those tracks. And that train ran on the Sabbath every day after that. Why didn't that happen to David here? Suppose I were to say to you, think of some irresistible force. Let us say Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Suppose you were to hear me say, look, the bulls don't have a chance. I am a Christian. God is on my side. I can take on those bulls. They don't have a chance against me. By God's grace and his strength and his power, I'm going to go out there and take on those bulls single-handedly. They cannot stand. They will come down today. And off I go. Now, what would you think of me? You would think, yeah, right, sure. And you would consider me a fool. A fool. Why isn't David foolish? I never understood the answer to that question. It may be blatantly obvious to you. I never understood the answer to that question until I, as an adult, came to a serious study of this passage. And I got past the little Sunday school tale level of understanding this text. And I entered into it fully and I came away powerfully impacted in my walk with God. I want to share that insight with you door on this passage that the Lord opened up to me when we talk about giants what comes into your head what do you think of what do you probably think of stories like Jack and the Beanstalk Jack the Giant Killer or maybe the Jolly Green Giant or Paul Bunyan or maybe Gulliver's Travel or all of the things of our lore our, our cultural lore that's what the average American would think of when we talk about a giant. That's not what the readers of this text would have thought of, not any of that. What would they have thought of? When you hear this account of a giant stepping up to oppose the armies of Israel, what would have immediately come into their minds? Well let's track through that just a bit. I want to draw your attention back some 250 years beforehand. This is Numbers 13 and 14. Let's lay a bit of background to this passage. To understand David. They've come into the wilderness now. They've got to enter into the land. They're sent there by God. God has promised he would go before them. He's promised them that they would have the land. But they come to the land and they're fearful. They're knocking on the door, so to speak, but they're fearful. They're in the vicinity, but they decide that they want to send some spies in. Go in and search out the land. So they come up with 12 spies. All 12 go in. They come back and they tell a story. Sure enough, just as promised, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. But, Numbers 13, verse 28, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak. Now mark that name. The descendants of Anak. The Anakites or the Anakim. The giants that filled the land. And these spies, the ten, talked the people out of going. Caleb and Joshua, the other two, silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with them said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. All the people we saw are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, parenthesis, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We are talking about giants here, the descendants of Anak. They're numbered among the Nephilim, the giants. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And what's more, we look the same to them. We look like insects compared to these giants that were in the land. We can't go up there. We can't take this land. But Joshua, the son of Nun and Caleb, these two spies said, yes, we can. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of the giants. You know the story, of course, that the generation followed the ten rather than the two. And as a result, God judges them and tells them that they will not make it into the land at all. Not until the next generation. Only Joshua and Caleb will make it in. Well, let's fast forward a bit in the account uh, numbers over into the book of Deuteronomy. Where you have Moses giving an account in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Recounting this, we get some added insight here. These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. He's recounting this where the Lord promises this land. Verse 8. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore that he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. 800 years before the promises had come. God has said, you can take this land. I will go before you. I will protect you. I will drive them out. He instructs them to go. All the way down, recounting down into verse 21. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it. As the Lord your God told you, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. But, verse 26, you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. What did they say in the rebellion? Verse 28, the people there are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites, the giants in the land. And then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. And yet, verse 32, in spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. And as a result, you were judged. Only Joshua and Caleb trust the the Lord wholeheartedly, the text tells us. And as a result, they are the only ones going into the land. Fast forward over to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Now they are ready to enter into the land. That first generation is gone and the second generation is ready in fulfillment of the Lord's promises to go into the land. Moses is giving them a last word. He is not going to be able to go with them. He has to turn things over to Joshua. Verse 9. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you. They have large cities that have walls built up to the sky. The people are strong. Anakites, the sons of Anak are there. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand against the Anakites. But be assured today that the Lord, your God, is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And he will, you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. And we fast forward still further into the book of Joshua, the account of the conquest The conquest has taken place. The people have crossed the Jordan. They've gone in and taken the land. They have driven out the inhabitants, including the Anakites. They have taken the giants. Now, not all of them. Some are left. We come to Joshua chapter 14, and we peek in on this fellow Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who said, yes, we can do it. Let's go. And as a result, are the only two of that entire first generation who actually wind up in the land. Now, here it is, 45 years later, that whole time in the wilderness and now the conquest of the land, 45 years later. It's time to dole out some of this property that they have taken. And Joshua and Caleb have been promised by the Lord because of their wholehearted faith that God would give them the land that their feet had walked on. And so we come to chapter 14 and we take a look at this fellow Caleb. Very interesting fellow. I really like Caleb. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. That is, Caleb says verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of God, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers, who were with me, made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. And so on that day, Moses swore to me, the land in which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, Caleb says, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old, he says. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out into battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country. That the Lord promised me that day, you yourself heard, you heard it then that the Anakites were there and that their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said, let me at them. There are still giants in the land. They're not gone yet. They're up there in the hill country. God's given me that hill country. He's promised it to me. I'm 85 years old. I'm as good as I was when I was 40. Let me at them. Because God says they don't have a chance. I love this guy, Kim. He's a man who trusted God with all of his heart. So that when God said something, everything in him wanted to respond. Caleb, 85 years old, as strong as ever, let me at him. But it's this fellow Joshua that we want to finish with here. Joshua, drop back to chapter 11 and verse 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses. So Moses commanded Joshua, who had taken over for Moses, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites. I'm dropped down to verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites, the sons of Anak, the Anakim, from their hill country, from Hebron and Debir and Anab. And all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them. He t- totally wiped out the Anakites, the sons of Anak, and their their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Except. Now look very closely. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory, except only in Gaza And Ashdod and Gath. Now, does that ring a bell at all? Gath. Some of the sons of Anak were left in Gath. Fast forward 250 years. The debut of this young man, David. His first public account. He's already been anointed by Samuel. But now this is his first appearance on the public scene. And he comes upon the Israelite army and he looks out and there in front of him is a giant from Gath. Let me ask you the question. What is it that David is trusting? Is this the act of a brash and arrogant young man coming up from behind the scenes and saying, hey, I can do this. I'm going to go out there and take on this giant. The answer is no. There's nothing arrogant about David. There's nothing brash. What there was about David was this wholehearted trust and faith and confidence in the revealed word of God. That may be the most obvious thing in the world to you. Maybe you have never heard the story of David and Goliath without being that being crystal clear. But I have to tell you that is the point that I missed. All of those years. That was the missing piece of this. Here is David, a man after God's own heart. What was it that made David a man after God's own heart? One of the best ways to get an answer to that question is to see the contrast between Saul and David. Saul is the man with a better idea. Always a man with a better idea. God says, wait, okay, I'll wait until uh, it occurs to me. I'm tired of waiting. And he acts. God says, go do something, and he says, all right, I'll do it up to a certain point, And when he has a better idea about uh, changing some of those instructions, then he changes the instructions. Saul, the man with a better idea, who always thought of himself as having a better idea. Better idea than God. He is a foil for our understanding of this young man, David. The mark of David, the man after God's own heart, is that he is a person with a childlike confidence in the Word of God. So that when God speaks, everything in Him says, I want to obey. When He stepped out there and onto that battlefield in front of Goliath, this was not an act of arrogance or brashness. This was an act of childlike confidence in the Word of God. Like Joshua and Caleb, those early spies who came back having seen the giants, He came back and said, they cannot stand. Why cannot they stand? Because God has said he will go before us. Their protection is removed from them. We will be able to take them. God has spoken. So let's go. What are we waiting for? As against the rest of the Israelites and those ten other spies who said, no, they're giants. We can't do it. And here we are 250 years later with Israel back in the same position. The army lined up. Saul in their lead. Like those ten spies, watery knees, looking at this leftover giant in the land and saying, we can't do it. And David says, what do you mean we can't do it? Hasn't God said? Didn't God tell us that the giants in the land couldn't stand, that their protection was removed from them, that we can go and he will win the battle for us? Isn't that what God said? Then by God, let's do it. I'll go. Nothing brash about it. Utter and absolute confidence in the revealed word of God. See, that changes the whole notion of what the giants are and what we do with this story and how we understand it. Giants are not simply any obstacle that happens to come up before us. We cannot claim somehow uh, by faith to take on the giant obstacles of life. Just because as a pastor, I have faced many a time when I am working with a family, for example, who's been struck by a very serious illness, perhaps a terminal cancer diagnosis, only to have these very warm-hearted and committed Christians say, I have faith God is going to heal me. And I'll tell you, that that throws me into a quandary as a pastor, just as to what do I say to that. I always want to say, uh, wait, what do you mean? Are you telling me that God has told you he's going to heal you? Because you see, faith in the Bible is always taking God at his word. It is not faith for faith's sake. It's not faith in faith. That's paganism. That's Peter Pan stuff. If God has not spoken, it is impossible to exercise faith in the biblical sense of faith. Because faith in the Bible is always taking God at his word. Hold fast the confession of your hope. Why? Because faithful is the one who promised. Our hope is based upon the promises of God and we trust the promises of God because of the one whose promises they are. It is always in the revealed will of God, word of God, that we are exercising faith. When someone says, I I believe God is going to heal me, I always want to say, but wait, wait, wait. Has God told you somehow that he's going to heal you? I don't even want to second guess you. I mean, God doesn't tell me things like that. I don't get messages like that. I know the Bible doesn't promise that. What are you saying to me when you say I have faith that God is going to heal me? Typically, what it means is I have confidence that God has the power to do it, and I want it so badly. Badly that I am going to will it into existence with my faith. That is not biblical faith. If God has not spoken, we cannot express faith. Faith, biblically, is always taking God at his word. And It may well be that that disease has been brought into this life for a purpose, that God is the one who, in fact, has brought that disease into that life. He's never promised us that we will not face these kinds of obstacles. And we have no business calling this one of the giants of life that I'm going to conquer David-like with my faith. Nonsense. Now, the giants of life for us are not merely obstacles, problems, challenges that we face that somehow, if we have enough faith, we can conquer these giants. Uh, How often have I heard this story told in just that context? That's not what this passage is about. The giants in life are those obstacles to the revealed will and word of God. Those items on which we have God's promises. Uh, Take, for example, that illness. It may well be a case that God has not said, I am going to heal you. If he has said that somehow, then we had better take him at his word. But short of that kind of promise, then we need to claim the promises he has made. We have no business putting promises into the mouth of God. What has God said? He's not told me he's going to heal me. But what has he said? He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will stick to you closer than a brother. He said, there's nothing that happens in your life that is not somehow part of what I'm working together for good. It's not that God has not spoken to us in that terminal illness. He simply has not said, I'm going to heal you, but he has given us promises. And in that moment, the response of faith is to claim those promises and to bet our life upon them. We heard it cited from Hebrews 13 earlier. It's just exactly the way it works. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so therefore we can say, What have we to fear? What can anyone do to us? You see, that's the way it works. That's what was going on for David. And that's the way it has to work for us. The giants are not simply any obstacles that come along. They are obstacles to the revealed will and word of God. Issues on which we have promises of God that we can claim and bet our existence on. And it is that that I want to call you to here this morning. It's amazing how what Jeff was saying earlier in the chapel hour, uh, was hand in glove with what he had no idea what we were going to be dealing here with this morning. Yet it was hand in glove with exactly the same set of issues. I mean, what are your giants? Think about it. What are the giants you're facing? Well, Some of you may be suffering some senioritis right now. You're coming up on graduation about this time of the year. And you're facing some very real giants. Maybe the Lord's calling you, say, to the mission field. And you know God has put his hand on you. You know he has drawn you in this direction. He has put this into your heart, and you're utterly convinced that he wants you. And yet you're looking at the whole issue of, how do I get to the mission field? How on earth do I ever find a way to fund this? I've got school debts. Uh, I've got to raise my, my support. I've got... To, and here it moves this huge giant that you, you, you look at and you find yourself getting watery in the knees. I want to say to you, if God has called you to this and you know that God has called you to this, then like David, you need to step out and watch God win the battle for you. Maybe as you think about going to a foreign land and the missions, you've been there. You you've visited that land. You've walked those streets. And you feel very much like a grasshopper walking those streets. Have you ever felt that way in another culture? I have. India, for example, does that to me. been to India a number of times. I walk down the streets of India and I just kind of look around and I say, this is so different. These people look different. They sound different. They smell different. They think differently. This is a huge, looming, Something that if I were a bit called to India to go there to take the gospel, the question of how on earth do I ever bridge this to be able to get out and touch these people with the gospel? And you walk in that you, you, this overwhelming sense of India and its foreignness to me and to anything related to the gospel. And there are ways you can get watery in the knees and begin to think. How could I ever make an impact for Christ in the midst of this? which time we need to be reminded of the promise of God that the gospel of Jesus Christ is like those smooth stones that David picked up from the brook. It seems small, it seems insignificant until you begin to preach that gospel and you realize that God says this is the power of God unto salvation to transform lives, to transform nations, to transform the world. And like David, you say, by God's grace and God's power, I will go forward with the weapons of warfare that he has put into my hands, his word, and I will trust it. Some of you may be called into an academic life. Some of you may be going on into some sort of academic pursuit. You look at our culture, what's happening in our culture, the secularizing of our culture, the rising tide of hostility. In our culture toward the gospel. And nowhere is that more hostile than in the academy and the world of higher education. You may be going on to some sort of university work and you find yourself fearful at that prospect. And from a human point of view, you have every reason to be fearful. I live in a situation where I have my nose rubbed in that academic world constantly. And I am very aware of what it is you will be stepping into. We live in an environment that is no longer congenial to the gospel. We have had a sort of Christian uh, quasi-consensus in this nation, at least at a social level. That is long gone. And now we now live in an environment that is not only indifferent to the gospel, it is hostile to the gospel, actively repudiates any claims of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. You step into that university setting with your flag flying for Jesus Christ, and you can find yourself like those spies Watery in the knees, until you realize the promises and the power of God that is available to you, under the winsomeness of Spirit and total confidence and absolute trust in the revealed will and word of God, you stand to be counted for Jesus Christ, and you watch God use you and empower you, and win battles through you. Maybe your giants are internal. Maybe they're personal. Maybe it's a, a relationship. Maybe a broken relationship. God wants you to pick up on and and deal with. A root of bitterness. Something that needs to be forgiven. It needs you to take the initiative. And everything in you says, I can't. I cannot. God says, oh, yes, you can and you must. And if you will, watch me work through your obedience. Maybe your giants are some sort of besetting sin, something you look at and you just you've been dealing with this for a long time. and you even get periodic victory only to be crashing back into it again. And right now, that thing looms before you, and you feel like a grasshopper in its sight. I want to say to you, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live in defeat. You can live in utter and absolute victory before the Lord as you claim his promises and his power. You may be living in the face of all kinds of defeat. as Satan doing a number on you and your head, telling you you're worthless, you're insignificant, you're no good. Look at this, you're caught up in this sin again. You're not even a Christian. Just knocking you around. And you've got a choice to make as to whether you're going to believe the word of God and what God says about you and who you are and the power that you have at your disposal to resist Satan and he, he will flee. To claim the promises of God and to see yourself as God sees you. And to see the power that is in you, you are free from the uh, sin. You do not have to live in bondage to sin. That power over you has been broken, the word of God says. Satan will tell you the opposite every chance he gets. The question is, are you going to live in the light of what God says or what Satan tells you? All kinds of giants out there. The giants have to do with those things that stand up, loom up before us and seem large and frightening, that are there standing in the way, as Goliath was, of the revealed will and word of God. And I want to say to you that if you will trust that will and word of God, like like Caleb and Joshua in 250 years like David who followed in their footsteps if you will trust the Lord wholeheartedly let him speak don't put words in his mouth let him speak And when you have found the, the, the promises of God that you will bet your life on them as David did you will find yourself also being able to kill giants Some of God's greatest opportunities come to us disguised as giants that need to be brought down. My prayer for you is that God will teach you how to trust him wholeheartedly, claiming his promises and using you then to bring down those strongholds that stand in the way of his revealed will. Let's stand together for prayer. Our Father, we bow before you this morning, feeling very, very often like those grasshoppers. In ourselves, we are weak, small, inadequate. Father, we ask that somehow you will help us to see that we do not find our sufficiency in ourselves. Father, would you Help us to become those people who know what it means to trust you wholeheartedly. With a childlike confidence and faith, like David, to step out and to take you at your word. To step out with the weapons of warfare that you have provided, trusting those weapons, not trying to create our own, not trying to have a better idea, trying to redo, I'm willing to trust you and claim your promises and live them out whatever the cost. Father, we ask that you would help us to be giant killers. Preserve us from going off on our own and claiming promises you have never made. But, Father, where you have spoken, would you grow us into the kind of people that are willing to trust that at every cost. We want to be people of your word. People who live in the confidence of your promises because we know the one whose promises they are. We pray these things for Jesus' sake and the sake of his church. Amen.